events like this, I think that sometimes uh, there is more to be learned uh, from the Q&A sessions uh, than, you know, than the whole event itself. And I think uh, it's uh, a lot of credit goes uh, to you know, the people here who have asked uh, these questions and occurred uh, greatly for you know, so informatively answering them. Uh, before we get into the, into the second book launch, I wanted to talk about a couple of things that are somewhat pertinent to that. And if you look at the history of JNU, how many of you know when it was the Jawaharlal Nehru University founded? Anyone? Without Googling it. <laughs> Something around 1969 by Mrs. Indira Gandhi, who was the Prime Minister then. Do you know why she started Jawaharlal Nehru University? Apart from obviously to commemorate the memory of her father. Mrs. Indira Gandhi. No, her, her motivations were entirely different. Mrs. Gandhi wanted to create an institution that would create leftists and communists who would be sympathetic towards the Congress and who would act as a counter towards the communists of that time. Within 12 years, within 12 years, by 1980-81, JNU had become a problem for the Congress government even then. Frequent strikes and uh, uh, cases of harassment and embezzlement of money and God knows what not. If you go back to the India Today archives and look at the year 1981, there was a cover story on JNU where it lamented that 200 crore rupees or so had been sunk into that institution and not a single noteworthy redeeming feature had come out of that institution. 37 years later, has anything changed? I think it's actually become a lot worse. That was one. The second one is... Sure, please. It's actually ironical that the officers who pass out from NDA, they get a degree from jail. <laughs> But, but they do. And in one incident which happened, a uh, couple of officers who after commissioning were on leave in Delhi and they uh, there was some Kavi uh, Sambhalan kind of a thing and uh, in, in Jaini. So these two officers went there and they were shocked as to similar things were happening with, with mobile phones and uh, the technology with 24-7 news channels. Now we know what is what is happening inside JNU. But it's been happening for a pretty long time. So these two officers were shocked. And they got up and they said, what are you talking about? And these two people, officers, were beaten up by that gang, by that mob, I would say. And uh, they managed this survive. But uh, they came and narrated. Of course, nothing happened. So it is ironical that the army officers get a degree from the Jawaharlal Nehru University. Irony with a tragic twist. <clears throat> the other thing to also that I wanted to point out is that with respect to the 1962 war, forget for the moment that India lost that war and it was perhaps one of the most humiliating experiences and blows on the Indian psyche for decades. Our Prime Minister, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, had once said that a side thing doesn't matter because not a blade of grass grows on it. 
So one parliamentarian got up inside Lok Sabha, showed his bald head and said, not a blade of grass grows here, should I just cut it away and give it away? The second one is, look at your history. When the 1962 war was waged by China, it coincided with another very important world event that was taking place. Does anyone know which one or anyone want to guess which one? The Cuban Missile Crisis. Within 48 hours of the Cuban Missile Crisis being resolved, China declared a unilateral ceasefire. Consider the, the import and the implications of this. China knew exactly when to wage war and when to stop. Do we? As a nation, do we know that? The third point is, uh, Sai mentioned that Mahabharata is our passion and perhaps you should not have mentioned it because it's going to you know, take me off on a tangent but I'll keep it short. The Mahabharata is not just a book about a war between the two families, between the Pandas and Kauravs. If you go past the war and if you get into the Shanti Parv and Anushasana Parv in which talks about the Raj Dharma and the Abhadha Dharma Parv, some of the quotes in there are so stunning that it makes you wonder whether our leaders who claim to be followers of the Mahabharata not have actually even read that epic. I'll read out a few lines from there. One is, and I quote verbatim, when there is a time of calamity, those who do not act, or those who do not act directly, are both reprehensible. The earth destroys two, like a snake destroys those who live in holes. One, a king, One is a Brahman who doesn't go out of his home and beg for food and the second one a king who is not aggressive. No matter how much you read that Ashoka was a great king, he is not an exemplar of great kings as per Hindu dharma. And even, uh, even more striking quote. This is I think this is Bhishma telling you this You have established yourself in non-violence and have thereby created the importance you should not follow. Now the question is, who would you rather believe? A 20th century saint who said the Ahinsa Paramodharma? Or should we go back to the original book from which this quote is taken? Everything is a context. Do you know, do you know at the end of the war when Duryodhana was caught in that pond of water where he was hiding, Duryodhana actually made an offer of peace. He said, you take the kingdom. He told Yudhishthira, you take the kingdom. I don't want it. I will go and live in the forest as a mendicant, as a, as a whatever. Yudhishthira said no. And his words were, which, should, which are frankly chilling, he said, if in a battle, both of us remain alive, People will be in doubt as to who won the war. <clears throat> so everything has a context. The same Yudhishthira wanted to renounce the kingdom after the war, but while the war was going on, he had no such doubts. So much so that on the 17th day of the war, when Arjun didn't see Yudhishthira on the battlefield and he got worried and he told Krishna, I want to see Yudhishthira before I continue the battle, and Krishna brings him to Yudhishthira's tent. 
Yudhishthir asks him, have you killed Karan? His first question is, not why have you come, have you killed Karan? Have you brought me this good news? He is the man because of whom I have not been able to sleep for 13 odd years. And when uh, Arjun tells uh, Yudhishthir that no, but I will, trust me, I will kill him, but I just wanted to see whether you were well and alive. You know, Yudhishthir tells uh, Arjun, he says, you are a shame, you are a blot on the, on the Kulum family. It would have been better had you not uh, been uh, born. So, this, you, if you want to quote Yudhishthir and say that Ahinsa Parumadhar Mandir is also a context to it, then you have to be aware. Unfortunately, what our leaders do is they will rely on the gullibility of us Indians to give us only the half picture. So, it is up to us to make sure that we are better informed and fully informed. Which brings me to the last point, which is that our soldiers, our Kshatriyas, create the physical space inside which we have the freedom, the responsibility of creating a nation. Who creates that nation? It is the intellectuals whose duty it is to decide what kind of a nation society should be created. Right? So the second book has been written by one such intellectual and I will read out uh, his very, very fascinating life story. It's, uh, uh, so he's a mathematician which puts him in the most boring category of all people uh, known to society. He's a graduate of the Indian Statistical Institute in Kolkata and with a PhD in mathematics from the Johns Hopkins University. He's now assistant professor at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore. And things would have remained firmly in the boring category had it been just that. But sometime back, about three, four years back, he went public with his passion for social and political issues when he started writing on his own blog called dynastycrooks.wordpress.com and he also has a handle on Twitter by the same name, Dynasty Crooks, I believe. No, Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, I'll take that back. So, and his scholars have appeared online in Swarajya, My Nation, Pop India, and, uh, in, uh, and other places. And his debut book, which released uh, just a few weeks, a couple of months back, I believe, or, or even uh, more recently than that. 2nd of January. 2nd of January, I think that back, which released just uh, you know, barely a little more than a week ago. Operation Jogger is a story of love, yet one that captures the struggle between the forces of hope and the forces of fear and natural terror affected Charlie. And if 2611 talks about the battles that we have to wage, we have not waged against enemies that they strike, that live outside of the nation, Operation Jaha is set and talks about the enemies that live inside our nation. What our enemies outside our borders do is their is what they do, it's what they are supposed to do. But what do we do about the enemies inside our nation who feed on the money that they get from us and yet call for the destruction of the country as it exists? So with that, I invite Professor Abhishek Banerjee to join us.
a spoiler. And, and, and as I told you, there is one phrase in the book that has that just struck me and uh, it probably stayed with me for a long, long time. Perhaps I won't. Or, or maybe you, if you don't, I will. But uh, the book is brilliant. Uh, very, very uh, a, a plot that will touch you, which will, which is very, very real. It's a reality that a lot of uh, people, especially in the naxal-infested areas, have to live with, and which also talks about the support in in uh, the support that these people receive. Uh, and there is a character by the name, of, uh, by the name uh, who's simply called a professor, who's paralyzed from the waist down. Those of you who have been following uh, Naxils and their supporters and their, and, and their doings will have no problems identifying that real-life character. Uh, but I will invite uh, Abhishek to please uh, say a few words about the, the book and the inspiration that led to the book as well as his alter ego of the Dynasty Books. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much to everyone for coming. There are people who have come in not just from Bangalore, there are friends who are coming from Puducherry, from Delhi, from Pune. My wife, she is coming from Pune. Thank you to her as well. So, Operation Jumar Love Story, this is the title of my book. So, you know, they say writing about what you know. So, first of all, I'd like to ask a question. Does anyone here know what the word Jumar means? Mitro, anyone? So, Huh? Yes. That was the time when Johar was there. Yes. This is actually a bit of a confusion. Because the word Johar is the word that we use in Jharkhand, which just means Namaste. So it's also known as Johar. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So I, I do not believe there is any particular connection with Johar, which you might be more familiar with, or with current Johar, whom you might be definitely familiar with. So, um, so the word they use is Johar, it just means Namaste. It's like so all over Rati, all over Chhatrapati, you will see this word Karmapurisa, yes. From some tribal regions of West Bengal, you will also be familiar with this word. So, speaking of uh, what we know, so what do we do? We know one thing, we know that we are a rising country, aspiration. So, the idea is not just to go ahead. We can actually be number one, we can lead the world, right? This is what we think. Now this is what I call on the one hand, the forces of hope. And if you go to a place like Jharkhand, which is a place with, uh, you know, a lot of hope, but perhaps not so much reaching uh, opportunities. We have lots of resources, but not that much opportunities. So you will feel something like this pressure differential, you know, like a high pressure, low pressure thing. And so you will feel this incredible force, this wind in the sails of aspiration which is blowing through. But on the other hand, you will have what I call the forces of fear, the natural forces. So you might be aware of this uh, simile or metaphor that Arundhatira had, Gandhians with girls. So one thing I can assure you, they are not Gandhians. And the most important thing that I can assure you, those guns, they are very, very real. We know they are very real because they kill our people. So we know those guns are real. So I wanted to write this book which uh, captures this conflict between the forces of hope and the forces of fear. And I chose to write it through the eyes of a teenager 
who is growing up in Nati and from Thailand and from Nati. This is what I relate So his world, he wants to get ahead in life, to make something of himself. So what is his world? His world is of competitive exams, of physics problems, of course Parathas. And his name is Somo, that's his name. And he's in love with the girl who lives next door. And she's adopted by the way. So, yes, like Avina pointed out, I belong to a fairly boring community, so I am sure all of you are thinking, what is this mathematics guy doing about writing a book? So, you know, all he talks about all day is y square minus something plus x equals 23, whatever. So, so the main question you might be thinking is just how boring is this book? So, what I would like to point out is that mathematics is a lot more like literature than we realize. So for this, uh, let me quote Alexander Muthendi, who is perhaps one of, the, one of the most important figures in mathematics in the last century. And he describes how a mathematical theorem arises. And he explains it in purely what you might call literary terms. He calls it the rising sea. So I will quote, because I'm quoting from memory, a few words might be off here and there. But this is the essence of it. He says, a different image came to my mind a few weeks ago. Texas in French, Le Bertrand, the rising sea. The unknown thing that I had to know was like a bit of earth, a, a mass of hard earth, and the sea was rising towards it. And insensibly, sensiblement, without sensing, it's so brilliant, without noise, the sea keeps rising. And nothing seems to happen at first. There's no sound, nothing else. But little by little, the sea rises until that piece of earth has become nearly an island. Then it has become an actual island. Then it becomes an islet. And then it finally disappears under the sea. So this is the rising sea, the way a mathematics theorem arises. This, this metaphor, the rising sea, is perhaps the most famous metaphor in all of mathematics. So in my case, I would not describe my book as the rising sea. But what I would describe it is the rising island. So you see, in the beginning nothing seems to be happening. The ocean is there still. But there is volcanic activity that is happening below the surface of the water. There is lava that is getting deposited on the ocean floor. And so little by little, this island rises. So this book, it had been building up inside me for a very long time. That's why I call it The Rising Island. So my journey with writing, it began a few years ago. So it was a late night and then on a late night film, I just took to the internet and then I started writing my blog, I called it Dynasty Truths. And when I began, I had absolutely no expectations. And one advantage of the fact that I had no expectations is that I could be myself. And then I started getting a little bit of interest, you know, trips and drives. And then suddenly I began to feel that the faith was coming when I felt like, wow, this is really working. So I started to write more. I put myself out there on social media, on Twitter. And then I started writing columns for India.com, which was a very important opportunity for me. So one, two, three, it went all the way up to 250 columns or so. I started writing bits and pieces in my nation, in Sorajya and elsewhere. So as I said, this book was always building up inside me. 
So once I had this island created, you know, rising out of the water, I realized that I could now fill it with people. I could create this ecosystem to live on this island. Right? So I could invent all these people, these characters who would live on this island. And this was actually quite easy, which was a surprise to me. Because it seemed to me that I already knew the people inside. And maybe if you read the book, you will feel like you know some of those people and you would like to talk to them. So, what I, when I first spoke about the book, I said it was about the forces of hope and the forces of fear. But what I did not mention is that there is a third force. This is what I call the forces of subversion. And today many people refer to them as urban nuzzles. Now you know what urban nuzzleism is? It is the same old communist superstition. I call it superstition because communism is just a, a fundamentalist religion as any other out there. So it's basically communist superstition. It's greased with foreign funding. And for some local flavor, what they do is it makes me really, really mad. Is that they spice it up with some rhetoric about tribal identity. Whatever they feel is their version of tribal identity basically lies. And then they serve it. And the idea is that if you have a certain amount of what I call middle class guilt, you might just eat it up with a spoon. That's, that's what they're thinking. So, in this book, Soul, that I spoke about, he is as much a protagonist as he is an observer. He wants his love story with Dr. Sanita, the doctor who lives next door. He wants IIT. That's the Indian dream, some would say. But what is happening is that these forces of fear, these forces of subversion, they are threatening to knock it out of him, out of his hands. And the absolute cruelty of what is happening, it just leaves him numb. Because you know, this pain, when you are growing up in Jhaka, there's all this, there's all this pressure, there's all this desire to do something, but you're also aware of the pain around you. This pain of left and terror, it's very deep, you can feel it. And so as much as this is a growing up story, for a coming of age story for Soma, it's also for Sangeeta because she's trying to find clarity between the violence and what feels right. So there are some other influences in the book which are lifted from things that have touched me deeply over the years. The first is of course the Godra Carnage of 2002. It happened when I was taking classical board exams. You might remember it was at the end of February, it was right between my board exam. And even though, so you can imagine the kind of uh, mindset I was in. So on the one hand, there were these exams which are like the biggest deal out there. Because that's like the 1st of March and this happens on the 27th of February. So I don't even have time to breathe. But I can feel it. I can feel it here. So the images of that train, the burn train, the compartment, I can never forget that. I will never forget that S6 code signal for the Agodra, February 27, 2002. And all the lies that have been told about it after that, even after the code verdicts. Never forget that. The other thing, the other influence was about the realization about the essential Indianness of the tribal identity. These forces of subversions, other nuzzles that I was talking about, they will never acknowledge this. So let me give you an example. In Chakran we have Bisamunda, yes, who is a very big hiker, 
So he was a freedom fighter. The British tortured him and they killed him in jail. When they killed him, he was only 25 years old. And he's so big that when in 2000, Jharkhand was created, the state of Jharkhand was created, the date chosen was November 15, the birthday of Bissamunda. He's that important to us. We refer to him as Bhagwan Bissamunda. All these words are very important. And so, that was nonsense. They know about this. They understand this. And you know what they do? They try to co-opt Bissamunda. And they try to turn him, of all things, into an icon of tribal separatism. Which is ridiculous. What they will never tell you is that Bissamunda's entire fight was also about fighting the oppression of the church. In fact, to fight the church, he began his revolutionary activities on Christmas Eve. Will the Abhinaksas tell you this? They will never tell you this. They will usurp the tribal identity, they will create a fake rhetoric, and they will try to stop up all these separatist ideas about. You might, I don't know how many people have heard of this. There's this thing going on in Jharkhand right now, it's called Patalgari. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a small tribal ritual that has been co opted by these urban Naksas into like they put this stone in front of the village and they say nobody can get into the village. Not just the police, don't believe all the stuff they tell you. Even the governor's school can get in. And that's very important because guess who just happens to run a bunch of schools? I leave that to your imagination. So they work together. So they do work together. This is happening right now, this Patalgari. So they co opt this and they just take this in and they try to fit it into their narrative and nobody calls them. And the other thing is that there is this event which is sort of less known. So in Tantrabada district of Chhattisgarh, there was this thousand year old icon, stone, statue of Ganesha, they discovered on the mountain top. It was the Dhulkal mountain. And we started calling it the Dhulkal Ganesha. And when word spread, lots of people started going in. So the Naksals, they heard about it too. You know what they did? They went to the top of the mountain, they destroyed this 1,000-year-old magnificent stone Ganesha. Who does that? But this is what the Taliban did with the Buddhas of Banyan. That's exactly what the Naksals did with Tholka Ganesha. And when this event happened, it really shook something very deep inside me. It's happened in 2017. This is not a thousand years ago. It's happened in 2017. And this is just as barbaric as what the Taliban did with the Buddhas of Bamiyan. So, this event definitely had a great impact on me. And there's only the front cover of the book you can see here. But the Ganesha does appear on the back cover of my book. And I will not tell you... Yeah, maybe someone... Yes. So this is not exactly the Dholkal Ganesha, but, it is, but the story is obviously influenced by that. And I cannot tell you more about the context. But if you ask me one sentence, describe what you want to do with this book. I will tell you that with my words, I try to, I want to bring the Dholkal Ganesha back together. One sentence. So, I the Indian Academy in Mindika, Bengaluru, Abhinavji, Shashi Kiranji, Everybody who has helped me throughout this journey and of course all of you who have come here given me some of your Sunday afternoon. So, thank you very much. Then you are So, I learned something more about Jharkhand and some of the ways in which the Nazis have co-opted the 
some of the local uh, symbols and traditions. Uh, it was shocking. Uh, I have a confession to make. Uh, I finished uh, Operation Jahar at 1 o'clock in the, in the morning or night. I don't want to confuse it like someone saying I finished it in the morning at night. But I <laughs> but especially since it's being recorded, I don't want to be for you know posterity being. So I finished at 1 a.m. and it is a page turner. As uh, Abhishek said, it starts out uh, uh, in a fairly innocuous manner, but it is a page turner in every sense of the word. And I think uh, you'll be doing yourselves as well as all of us a great uh, favor by reading it. It's a uh, uh, fabulous year. So, with uh, this, I'd like to invite Sai to uh, you know, share her thoughts because. Uh, Thanks for the privilege again, Abhishekji. The topic of Naxal terror and urban Naxals, it is such a difficult topic to write and survive after writing that it really deserves a unanimous support from everybody. So please, I was writing my first novel, Abhaya. No, nothing related to the politics of ideal or ideology of today. It's set in the Mahabharata time. It revolves around Naraka Suryavatha. It's a it's a story of around Krishna. I love Krishna. I just wanted to portray love and devotion through a fictional character, Abhaya. And I wanted the book to be published. Uh, like any author would, I approached a couple of uh, agents, publishers and got automated rejected mails. Then I uh, I was connected by some, uh, I saw some Facebook post uh, saying uh, uh, about a gentleman who was uh, conducting a writing workshop and who had, uh, who is also a literary mentor. Uh, I will not take his name. Uh, by art, but I attended the seminar was kind of inspired by some of some of the things that he said about writing, strictly about writing. Uh, then I approached him with my manuscript, saying, "Can this be published?" His re response was effusive praise. I have not read. Uh, I'm yet to read such an honest story. Uh, you know, I have not read such an honest story in the last couple of years, and I this can definitely be published. Well. So we can work on this. Okay, so what are the next steps? Uh, then uh, he got me into, so uh, there is a way that we need to change the way the story, you know, we, need, we just need to change the way the story is being told. And uh, because, you know, I know how publishers, the publishers know what readers want, so I have an idea about it. So let's start, start uh, rewriting parts of it. Okay. That seemed, and by this time I was fairly aware about the political developments, my political opinions were formed, my ideology was, was stable. He started talking about the character, 
uh, you know, the structure of the character, the arc of the character, uh, certain things you need to change because this won't get the reader sympathy. Uh, I mean, you know, and why is your character so happy? I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> how they have spread their tentacles into every field and how aware we should be 
how actively we should promote our literature and just think of uh, think of a situation that time uh, Indic Academy was not there but uh, fortunately when I finished my manuscript and uploaded the, the draft on Kindle Direct Publishing a lot of people from Erstwhile Indic uh, Book Club uh, came in open support and uh, there was no looking back. So uh, in the absence of organizations like that uh, two wonderful stories two very deserving stories that we should have been, we should be conscious about, would not have seen the light of the world. So, uh, I'll, I'll let that sink in and uh, let's do our bit. Thank you, Indica Academy. Congratulations, Manishi. Uh, congratulations, Manishi. I wish you all the best. So with that, uh, I'm sure you would have some questions uh, for, uh, for Abhishek and his book and he still not shared that phrase that has uh, stayed with me and that I emailed you about. Uh, but uh, anyway, I'll, I'll let that pass. Uh, so, if you have any questions about uh, the, the book uh, and to any of our uh, you know, three panelists, uh, Abhishek Sai and uh, Jetli, please, uh, you, know, you can ask them for a few minutes. After that, we will open this up for book signings. If you have uh, uh, copies of either of those books, uh, you, know, you can get them signed by them. And uh, any, any questions? So, uh, you mentioned, Abhishek, you mentioned funding very, very briefly. And yet, I think uh, they breaking the backbone and I think. Uh, YouTube sir could answer the question. Uh, funding of terrorist organizations, whether internal or external, whether we can have an honest answer as to who is doing it, who is awaiting it, and how can we curb it? So, let me tell you something that I feel, maybe if one would not agree. But honestly, I don't, so this concept of foreign funding and who's funding all these charities in India is a real question. And first, so let me tell you my core feeling. First of all, I don't trust China. So imagine if I came to your door and said, Oh, friend, I'm selling you this detergent or this powder I'm a salesman. You know what I am, right? You know what I'm looking for. So you can understand, what does this guy want? Suppose I showed up to your door and said, Well, I have come to clean your house. And he says, what do you want in return? Well, nothing. I just love cleaning houses. So I just come to your house every single day and I clean it up and I do the dishes and sweep the floor, mop the floor, I do everything. I don't want anything, I just want to serve people, I just enjoy that. You're definitely going to think, this guy is not telling me his motives. So there is this idea that, so honestly when somebody comes and especially if it's a foreigner, I don't even understand why a foreign country and people will ever be just randomly interested in serving people. When you don't know the economic motive, you shouldn't trust people. Okay, sure, there would be examples, there would be people who have done selfish charity. If you look at the sheer number of NGOs and the amount of money doing it, there can't be that many good people <laughs> <laughs> who are just doing things purely out of selflessness. I don't believe that. So maybe, maybe I, that's just my perspective, but I just don't believe this. So in general, so whenever there's money coming in and they say our only aim is philanthropy, it means they're not telling you what the money is for. So essentially, yeah. So we should just. Get rid as at least of foreign funding. That's that's like a starting point. Yes, what about inside the country? 
Well, of course, there are fears, but at the same time, there are civil liberties that we have to balance. But in general, I would just say the thumb rule. Don't trust anyone. So isn't that what we tell little kids if somebody comes to you in the park and says, here's some chocolate. Call an adult. Call the police. Right? Don't take chocolate from strangers. So it's the same rule for me. If you think about foreign funding, don't take chocolate from strangers. It's, it's just a good rule to stick with. So, what I would say. You asked about funding of these uh, terrorist organizations as well as urban natural system. <clears throat> well, firstly, uh, the terrorists in Kashmir, very simple, they get their money from ISIS. Very simple. Uh, the, a, one of the aims of demonetization was uh, that they had their money mostly in cash. So that was one of the aims. Uh, off late, uh, they are trying to squeeze that channel so that ISI channel does not uh, remain active as far as funding is concerned. Uh, the second one is, uh, he mentioned the NGOs uh, who also get money from Middle East. There are a lot of agencies in the Middle East and entities who are providing them uh, money. I'll give you one example. You must have heard of that proselytizer, uh, uh, infamous proselytizer Zakir Naik. Now Zakir Naik was again running an NGO and he was given funds from the, by the government of India. Yes. By the government of India, if I remember correctly, by Rajiv Gandhi, I think it was during his time. And uh, the funds were being given to these guys and his links with terrorists has been established. That is why he's on the run. He is not here, he is not uh, being, you know, uh, wanted for proselytizing. It is for links with the terrorists that he is running. That is what uh, the, uh, the police is looking for. So, uh, there are various ways in which uh, money is raised. Uh, now, with, uh, you know, uh, slowly and slowly, it's, it's a long, long process. And Havala is a very strong network that these people have. So uh, let's see how long if we are able to fight this menace. Uh, it's illegal now, but do you know the government of India used to promote this sex selective abortions? Research for this was carried out in the 1970s at Ames. And do you know who funded this research? U.S. based foundations. The United Nations, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, they funded this. Quotas were set. Money that came into the government of India was contingent upon the government meeting its quota of performing X number of thousand sex-selected abortions. Think about that. There was a book that was written that was a Pulitzer Prize runner-up in 2010 or 11. The name of the book is Unnatural Selection by Bala Vistinda. You can look it up on Amazon. Purchase a copy, share it, share it with other people. It's backed up by copious references. So when you talk about, as Abhishek said, if someone is coming in with the money because simply they have been fortunate enough to 
habit of good in life and now they just want to do some good and, and, and you know, give it back to society. It always comes with an agenda. Sometimes it, it is benign. Sometimes people are genuinely doing it for the love of mankind and humanity and so on, but they are bringing their own ideology with that money. So, even with the best of intentions, and it, is, it can be argued that these foundations came to India with the best of intentions, but what it brought upon the nation, and after they left, they destroyed all records, leaving India to be pilloried as a religion, Hinduism as a religion, that kills its female child. Think about that. Any other questions? First of all, I want to congratulate you that uh, you just your book has been After seeing your grandma looking chasing some of the guys in any other conferences, they could have been different. I would have visualized your things because I have also worked in that Dhaka, that Jamsetpur, then that I am an NIT doctor also. So somehow I am uh, into that type of area. Urban research after 2013, after this, somehow right-wing, a big ecosystem came out into this uh, SM4A, as well as other things. We could know who are urban nurses. Nurses, as far as my knowledge is concerned, and I have been a victim of the things when we tried to put up a new plant over there. Uh, in that, you know, Purulia, that's a district Purulia, that's just uh, bordering to your jacket. And that Padanampur is an area. And that's the biggest hotbed once upon a time for Naxals. So I have seen that those things. In the daytime they are farmers. In the nighttime they just come out with all guns blazing, just having uh, those black and red things. Urban Naxals right now are being indicated out, identified, and somehow they are being cornered. But how to get those tribal people who are really this, their bad ideologies has been induced into their mind. There is no concrete default from the state governments, neither from the state government nor from the central government. As an intellectual or as the intellectual society, as civil society, what we should do? I want your suggestion in that particular. So, you, so, okay, so you can't be, that's fine, I mean, intellectual, I don't mind. But uh, I might point later. So now, so as a civil society level, what are, one of the things that I would say is we have failed at one thing, and it's not just a failure that is restricted to India. It is a failure that is sort of worldwide. It is that we have failed to stigmatize communism as an ideology. So it is like, so for instance, if we were having a discussion, right? So, about what is happening say in Afghanistan or in Iraq or in Syria. So, would somebody say, well, how can you have a discussion without inviting ISIS to the table? You would not, right? Because it's a terrorist organization. You don't talk to ISIS. There's nothing to talk about. ISIS. Or if you were discussing something about Germany, you say, well, how did you not invite the Nazis over? You don't invite the Nazis. There's no dialogue with the Nazis. Nazism is horrible. It's just, you don't invite. But we act like these communists. Like, Rational, normal people can be communists. Communists have killed 1,000 lakh people. When you kill 1,000 lakh people, 
don't know why, why are we sort of even, we pretend like they can show up to lit fest. I mean, would you invite a Nazi to a lit fest? Would you invite a Taliban? Would you invite ISIS? You would not. So this is a failure that we have had. It's a fundamental failure. We talk about, so, there are, so in the newspapers, I read phrases like veteran communist leader. This is like reading veteran Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. This so and so happened to you. Would you use such language for Osama bin Laden? So communists must kill 1,000 lakh people. Let's be very, very clear. Let's, we have to stigmatize this ideology. This can be in our newspapers, this can be on our television. Not from a freedom of speech point of view, mind it. I am a very much, I'm a very much believer in freedom of expression. But from a point of view, for the same reason, you wouldn't invite them. So I'm not talking about the government laws and communists can't speak. Because you know, communists thrive on that. The biggest people, because they are the ones who use the freedom of speech to the max, and still they don't realize that it is our free, open society that allows them to even make that argument about free speech. If I went to this country and said to Kim Jong-un, I want to, you know, say something bad about you, Kim Jong-un Kim Jong would help Kim Jong-un. King is just as good. So he would have me buried in no time. So communists don't realize that. But the point is we have to stigmatize the communists. This is something that needs to happen fundamentally. And this is not just an Indian thing, it's a worldwide thing. I mean, just think about it. The Nazi symbol, it's banned in Germany. But the communist hammer and sickle emblem. So I so this, so a year or two ago I was in Poland and over there in Warsaw. And over there I see this art, which is a picture of a boot. It's a giant boot. And it says Buta Stalina. So it's a representation of Stalin's boot which crushed these people. So I went to Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin, where you know the last vestiges of communism and they put up a replica of the last uh, communist flag that flew over his Berlin. And there you stand there and you think about all the people that have perished under communism. And it's not just abroad, it's in our own country. So I'm from Bengal. This is an event that you might not have heard of. This is one of the most scary events. It's one of the events, it's called Shungari. It is a small place, I believe in Bakura or Bordhuman, I might be. Bakura or Bordhuman, one of the two places, Shungari. So I, I might be missing, missing the names. So there are these communists, they went to the house of a leader, he's a communist leader. They're a communist, communist, but he's a communist leader. They broke into his house. And there were two brothers there, the Shun brothers. They murdered the two brothers. And then they asked the mother of the two brothers to make rice. And once the rice was made, they made the mother mix the blood of her children in that rice and eat it. This is communism. So I will not make any allegation against any person, they could for a reason. Because certain people who were nowadays referred to as veterans, they were actually convicted and then the matter came up and then all the files were lost so we never have any proof. This is Orwell's 1984 done all the way over for you. So this is communism. This is the way it operates. So we have to stigmatize this. The way we stigmatize Taliban, the way we stigmatize ISIS, the way we stigmatize communism against Nazis, we have to do this. This is what we have to get done. Now, this is at the civil society level. Now, about the government level, I mean, this part just makes me so surprised. I mean, you know, so we know there is an incursion on our border, say. So Pakistan comes in and of course we go and we hit them, we pummel them, at least we react. But there are these places in Jharkhand. It has come down a little bit in recent years because there is some amount of extermination going on. But 
there are these places where which are literally parts of India and they are occupied by these forces which act exactly like a foreign invasion and occupation and we don't even talk about it in those terms and that's exactly what it is they occupy this area they take over the state they trample on our sovereignty and they are occupying much more land than we accused Pakistan of occupying and there was this part where I read hundreds of so the right way to measure territory covered by Nazars it's hard to measure in terms of districts because you know this is a little part of this district this is a little part of that district the best way is to count police station areas because you know the country is dividing these police station areas and these police station areas hundreds and hundreds of them and I remember reading an article that said so somewhere in the 2008 or 2009 that if you measure the number of police station areas that are under the influence of Nazis that's the third largest in the country at that time the Congress was the largest after the Congress the BJP and then there is this foreign occupying communist power which is just occupying our sovereign land and we don't do anything about it we don't even talk about it in terms of occupation and that just drives me nuts I mean we have to take back our land this is this as simple as that and the tribals how do you bring out the tribals well we don't have to honestly class because we pretend like the tribals are just the other like we have to treat them as exotic or something like us. With hopes and it's just like us, they want exactly what we want. So we don't have to tell them anything. They are under this occupation. You take them out of this occupation, you stigmatize the communists, you start speaking to them, you don't bring them to literature, you certainly don't invite them to TV and all, all this uh, nonsense that they do. And it's just you just treat it as a foreign occupation. So when like Kagil's days, so I don't know how many people live in Kagil, but suppose you know, Pakistan tomorrow occupied Jaisalmer. We go and we liberate Jaisalmer. And nobody would ask, how do you tell the people of Jaisalmer to stop believing in Pakistan's ideology? They don't believe in Pakistan's ideology. They're just like that. They're under occupation to liberate them. So, so. so uh, with this time, I'd like to bring today's Pokhlaunch event to a close. Uh, I would again like to thank Indic Academy. Indian Book Club for making this possible and for uh, and Dukkar Jaitley for writing 26 Blood and Forgiven, and Professor Abhishek Banerjee for writing Operation Johar A Love Story, and Ms. Sai Saruka for gracing this occasion as the chief guest and we wish her all the best for her latest book that has come out. This is a more this is a mainstream publisher published book. Uh, it's been published by Rupa Publications and it is called Dropoli. So we look forward to reading that book and uh, wish you all the best.